I'm Erin. And I'm Francesca. And you're listening to The Lady Cave, where ladies do as they please. And, and we, we find, find out, out how it's done. done. <laughs> Welcome back to The Cave of Ladies. Yes, thanks for joining us. Just a reminder, in The Lady Cave, we find amazing ladies who have defied the traditional spaces reserved for women and created a space entirely of their own. And we hope you enjoyed show last week as much as we did. Wait, do you mean enjoyed our show? No, I mean show as in Shoko Winger, our interviewee last week with whom we discussed the importance of opening up to others and sharing your struggles. What she does with her beautiful blog, Show and Tell, which we hope you guys all got a chance to check out. We also heard about her travels around the world where she gets to tell the story of people and their spaces. She said something really interesting about the importance of having the courage to reach out which I think comes from making peace with exactly where you are in your life. As far as courageous acts, let's talk about starting your own nonprofit. No, we are not starting the Lady Cave nonprofit. But for our next guest, the amazing Maria Cavares, she did exactly that. Maria's nonprofit, ScriptEd, brings computer programming instruction to under-resourced schools in the New York area. But it does so much more than just teach computer programming. It connects students to the world outside of their classroom and breaks down some of the limitations imposed by traditional curriculum. But there is really no one more equipped to talk about the incredible impact of Script Dead than Maury herself. So please enjoy our chat where we hear about how she went from teaching middle school history to founding a nationally recognized nonprofit. So welcome back to the Lady Cave. We're here with the lovely Moria Corvaris who is a triathlete and also the executive director of an amazing nonprofit, Scripted. Thanks. Moria, welcome. And we'd love to hear a little bit more about Scripted. Sure. Uh, so Scripted is a nonprofit based in New York City whose mission is to help students from under-resourced communities access careers in technology. Um, we do that by recruiting volunteers from the tech industry, folks who work as developers, um, to go into under-resourced high schools and teach a foundational course in web development. Um, and then over the summer, we place our, um, our most promising and most ambitious students into paid internships with um, tech companies around the city uh, where they have a chance to code alongside developers. And so based on your 2014 to 15 annual report, ScriptEd supports 30 schools here in New York. That's amazing. But okay, let's just rewind a couple years to when you were teaching middle school in Philadelphia. What was your experience like? And we were complete terrors in middle school. The so. worst. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, so when I graduated from college, I did Teach for America. Um, and I was assigned to Philadelphia as uh, my location for teaching. Um, and was assigned to middle school and history, so or social studies. Um, so in Teach for America, you often don't get like a lot of. Sometimes you get some choice, but they kind of just assign you to things as you go along. Um, and I thought uh, going into that that I was going to love teaching middle school. It was such a difficult time in my life. Like I just think back on it and thinking about how. You know, I think everybody kind of struggles in middle school with things, and I thought I could have a huge impact on kids at that level. Um, but as a teacher, I kind of found out that middle schoolers are incredibly difficult to handle. They're really emotional. They're going through a lot of changes in their bodies and their minds. Um, and I was teaching at a school that was really, 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 really difficult. Um, so uh, I stuck it out for a year. Teach for America is a two-year commitment, but I ended up leaving... 
um, after the first year of teaching. Um, I still knew I wanted to work with kids and I really, I mean, I adored the kids that I worked with, but it was so, I felt like I, I was not a good enough teacher to serve them well. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to work with kids um, in a way that uh, I felt like I was really helping them. And one of those ways was through working um, kind of in the out of school, after school space. I had taken my students on a field trip to see the Liberty Bell in Philly, um, probably three quarters of the way through the year. And I think they learned more in that one day than the entire school year of me trying to teach them about US history. And I just kind of dawned on me that if I could give, if I could, and the other kind of crazy thing is that the Liberty Bell was two miles away from the school, but most of the students had never even seen it. So it just like kind of occurred to me that there's like all these opportunities that you can give to kids that make them excited about learning, make them excited about the world beyond what they experience in their community, in their school. Um, so I think I, at that point, was like, I, I wanted to work in a more non-traditional kind of setting and wanted to give kids opportunities that weren't traditionally available in their schools. So you studied philosophy in Boston, mm -hmm. right? So how did you end up selecting Teach for America as the next step? You said you kind of were yeah. going through a difficult time. Was it... Like, you just knew that you wanted to be working with kids. How did that end up? Yeah, I mean, I... So I studied philosophy, and I think by the end of college, I, I had a lot of thoughts about potentially going into academia. I really loved philosophy. But I think after four years of studying it, I realized that I would have very little impact on the world by doing that, and I really wanted to get out and do something. Um, I didn't know that it was going to be teaching, but at that time, uh, I was looking at a bunch of different job offer opportunities from like finance to being a paralegal to to everything you could imagine. And Teach for America seemed like the best opportunity to make an impact. I didn't have like a huge desire to go into teaching. Um, I'm really glad I did it because it set me on a path, um, and you know, I became incredibly passionate about it. But it wasn't. I kind of didn't really know you know, at the end of college, what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to do something that was impactful and something that was real and like could, could, could make a difference. So post Teach for America, it sounds like you had a lot going on in your mind of like the kind of impact you could have on this world. But after you left that time in education, did you go to the private sector? Sort of. Okay. Um, yeah. So I started working for a law firm, Cleary Gottlieb, um, big international law firm, and they had a program within their CSR pro bono department where they partnered with a local high school, um, Washington Irving High School, which is like a famously, actually it's closed now, I think, um, but it's a famous school in that it's, it's just had so many problems over so many years. Infamous. Um, yeah, infamous. Yeah. There you go. There's the word. The job that they hired me to do was to basically coordinate after-school activities for this school. So things like SAT tutoring, um, mentoring, college advising, coaching the mock trial team, model UN team. Um, and my job was to recruit volunteer lawyers and paralegals to work with the students at that school. So for four years, I kind of, you know, I ran their college fair. I had an office in the building. So I, I still very much was in the education world, but also figuring out how I could get a company to make a huge impact on students' lives. Um, and it was really effective. Um, you know, one of the things that I like to brag about is our mock trial team. I mean, like, 
the kids, when we started working with them, had no idea what law school was. Like, they were completely unaware of the legal world, and we, like, recruited all these kids to do mock trial, and they ended up beating, like, Stuyvesant High School in a mock trial competition. And this is actually, like, what I like to use as the analogy for script ed, is if you can take experts from a field that are really passionate about what they do, and, like, you put, you know, four adults in a room instead of one teacher to 30 kids you're probably going to have really good results. So I saw that happening at the law firm of getting like groups of young professionals working with kids and seeing that the impact that they could have on the kids is real. It was very, uh, it was life-changing for a lot of the kids. And it was really exciting to see that kind of happen. This is way before Script Ed, but it was kind of a precursor to what ended up becoming script ed. Oh, yeah. that's perfect. So you were there for four years, and then there was this moment, like the light Florida. came to you, and you were like, script ed. <laughs> uh, I was actually there for six years. Um, okay. So I did this job for four years, and then after four years of doing the job, the firm asked me to become their pro bono coordinator. So my role transitioned from being like boots on the ground in the school to managing our pro bono programs across like 16 offices around the world. I had a supervisor, but I was kind of like the person who would manage all the details of like getting legal service organizations to source those cases, getting lawyers on board with those cases, matching up people. And one of the things that I was ended up being a huge part of my job was managing the data on the programs. Um, law firms get ranked um, based on the number of pro bono hours they bill and different publications rank you in a ton of different ways. Um, and law firms are not particularly efficient places. They all bill by the hour, so there's not like a ton of incentive to have systems in place that make things easy to get information. So there was not really an easy way for me to gather all this information. So I was like copying and pasting things in Excel and being completely inefficient in the way that I was getting the information I needed for the reports um, until one day uh, I had a friend who, was, who basically said to me, um, and I could write you a script and you would be done in five minutes and like you could use you know software development computer programming to solve this problem instead of spending like 16 hours on your weekend so he wrote me a program um, and then I became really fascinated with that and like bought a like Ruby book and I started learning Ruby and like really started getting really very very interested in coding um, but also was thinking a lot about my career I missed working with kids I, I was kind of like removed from the day-to-day, like feeling like I was actually having an impact. I felt more like an administrator. Um, so got very interested in coding, um, missed working with kids, and I was kind of like shooting some ideas off somebody uh, one day, and he said to me, like, why don't you just like do something that teaches kids how to code? And I'm like, that's a great idea. Um, and so I basically copied the same model that we used at the law firm, recruited uh, a couple of of folks um, from the tech industry to help me out with this and I kind of collaborated I had a co-founder so she and I were former educators um, and we found two developers and we collaborated on a curriculum and then we brought it to a school in the fall of 2012 and we just like one school kind of you know doing it in addition to our full-time jobs so so you guys were the first four teachers in the classroom working through this curriculum with kids yeah, we were just four volunteers doing it on our own. Um, we went to Harlem Village Academies and asked if they wanted to, to like host us as an after-school club. So it was two developers, me and Liz Davidson, who was a Teach for America Corps member with me in Philly. 
Um, and so we ran it that first year, uh, just kind of the four of us that first semester. And within the first week of the first class, somebody, a friend of a friend worked for Time Magazine, heard about what we were doing, wrote an article about us. Um, did like an interview with me and everything. This was before Girls Who Code had come to the city, before Teals had come. It was like kind of the very start of the learn to code wave for schools. Um, and we just got inundated with people reaching out, like schools reaching out saying, can we bring the program to schools, volunteers reaching out. Um, so it became very clear very quickly that we were on to something and that a lot of people wanted to get involved. Um, so. That first year, uh, Liz and I did it in addition to having like full-time commitments, and it, it just became too much to manage. So then we like turned it into a real like nonprofit and like raised money, and wow. I can go all into that too. <laughs> it was so that's so organic. I mean, yeah. it's so interesting that you guys put yourself out there as the guinea pigs for this. Like, maybe this will stick. Like, we are going to take this model, apply it to tech, and then it actually like the business just built itself because it was got out there your mission got out there yeah yeah it's, it was really um one of the biggest kind of pushbacks we got at the beginning from when i would tell people this idea is like you're never going to be able to get people to leave their jobs to go to schools twice a week and it's like actually now we have like a waiting list of volunteers still <laughs> we have like 150 people in classrooms so you know it was it was good to have that as a proof point when we were you know, first starting out and saying like, actually we have this huge waiting list of people that want to do this. Um, so it was really neat. And it's, and it, I think it's been pretty organic, even less organic, but you know, there's just a lot of excitement about helping out, um, in the tech community. I think, um, there's definitely a good collection of people that are really passionate about the work. So, yeah. When did you decide that, I mean, you had a co-founder, so when did you decide, or was there a moment where you were like, I'm the executive director, I'm going to take the reins, mm -hmm. or did that kind of just happen? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, it's a lot of it, I think, I mean, you'd have to ask her perspective of it as well, but I think a lot of it had to do with timing. So she was a PhD candidate um, trying to finish up her dissertation. And she uh, also needed to make money, right? And we couldn't, in the first year we made, I think we ran the whole program on like $12,000. Now we have like a $1.7 million budget. It's like, wow. it's like totally insane. <laughs> insane. But so we didn't pay anyone the first year and she really needed to take a job. So she took a job with the Department of Ed in New York City. Um, and because of her job contract and what she was doing, she was kind of conflicted out of working on a lot of the stuff with Script Ed. Um, and we hadn't gotten funding yet. So she kind of had to step back a little bit from um, the work that she was doing. And then it kind of all fell on me. And that was, I think, like May, June of 2012. So that summer, um, and this was like the, the summer before I ended up going full time. And like bef right before I like got the funding to hire Becca, um, my our director of programs is like, uh, script Ed's first hire beyond me and completely awesome person. Yeah, um, that is also amazing. amazing. Yeah. Um, and that summer it was so hard. It was, it was, you know, we we're trying to line up new school partners, but I still had a full-time job. Um, we didn't have funding for me to leave yet. And so it was just crazy. But anyway, it, it happened because Liz had this other job and we were growing the movement and I was fundraising. And by the time when it became like absolutely necessary, I didn't quit my job until after the school year even started. Um, and when it became absolutely necessary for me to quit my job, I quit. 
um, slash when we had at least a little bit of funding to, to pay my salary. Yeah, and that's like kind of how it happened. And so that's how I became the executive director because I was the founder and the first person that could do it full time. <laughs> so totally. Um, and we've explored this question with all the women we've interviewed so far. Um, and in your position as an executive, do you feel like your gender at all has um, an impact on that experience or your experience as you know an entrepreneur and starting an organization? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, has your gender played into any of the interactions or experiences that you've had? Yeah, I, I'm. Sh- I think it has. I don't. I at that point it didn't. Not when we were first starting out. It might have, but in ways that I wasn't noticing. I think the thing that strikes me the most is if I go speak at a conference or if I'm in a meeting uh, with people uh, that are a different gender or maybe even people that are older than me. A lot of times, I, I won't be the person that direct their uh, their comments to. Like they don't always automatically see me as the person in charge. I know I was I was at a conference in Texas and I, I was keynoting the conference and um, a couple started talking to me in the airport and they were completely like in disbelief that I could be keynoting a tech conference and like. <laughs> And it's just like things like that when people see you and they're like, they're really surprised that it's you that's doing the the work. Um, I don't think I've had, I've certainly had some, some other interactions that have made me feel like a little bit uncomfortable, but I would say for the most part, I've, I've feel like I've been pretty well supported. I don't know if that's because it's the nonprofit space. It makes it easier um, but yeah. Well, awesome. it also helps that I think that time article kicked off like an amazing series of events and awesome recognition across the board. Right. In 2015 alone, Scripted won the 2015 Google Rise Award, which I got mm-hmm. to look up. It's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. you also got a shout out from the White House. You were featured on multiple TV shows. You're now on an awesome podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. but do you seek these things out or have they just been coming in? Um, yeah, I think, uh, it, some things you have to seek out, some things uh, have come in. I think it's like kind of a waterfall effect. So that first year, we applied for a bunch of awards. Like we applied for um, an Emerging Innovator Award. We applied for a Social Innovation Award and we won a lot of them. And I think those things kind of, once you get a few, then like the the opportunities start coming to you more naturally. Um, Fundraising is different. <laughs> I think those we've definitely had funders like reach out to us and like say they want to get involved, but that that requires a little bit more like active going out and like cultivating, um, usually foundations. So, yeah, awesome. So, part of the motivation behind starting Scripted is to help solve tech's diversity problem. Mm-hmm. So this is an issue near and dear to my heart, and. Yeah. What impact do you hope an organization like Scripta-Ed will have on the tech industry as a whole? Yeah, um, I always say that I think Scripta-Ed will be successful when we have our students coming back to teach our classes and taking our students on as interns. Um, and that would mean that the tech industry is ref- reflects the students that we serve, right? That we actually see them represented in the industry. And for Scripta-Ed, our students, I think 80% are black or Latino. Um, and so if we can foster a tech community, at least here in New York for now and hopefully elsewhere in the future, um, where we're getting diverse 
students into the tech industry and also giving them uh, a sense of the need to kind of give back and help out the next generation. I think that's kind of what I want to see happen. And yeah, so I think ScriptEd will have achieved its mission if we've got our kids back in our classrooms. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then I think also, you know, on the industry side of it, when the products being made and the services being made by this industry Mm -hmm. are being made by a group of people who reflect the users and the landscape of customers that you will have, like you will be more successful, you know, in your company and your endeavors. So we talk about that a lot at at ScriptEd when we, you know, it's so important to make, to have diversity in a team because they will impact the products that you make and they will think of ideas that other people not like them will think of. The unconscious Um, bias. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. It's huge. You don't know if you don't experience it. Exactly. Yeah. I heard a story, um, about, uh, Google Glass and the Google Glass developers apparently was a team of, um, European men, European of European descent. Um, and then when they tested out the Google Glass on, uh, people from different backgrounds, they found like for, like it didn't fit with African American hair, right? Like because of the way that the, the um the frame the frames like sat on people's heads they had to readjust and and it's just like such a perfect example of why you need people from, of all different types of backgrounds working on products um, because you won't catch those things absolutely definitely so you already told us that you studied Ruby and you got interested because this guy wrote a script it was magical so we know that you're technically fluent so I'd actually rather know what the biggest challenge was starting scripted. Yeah, I mean it doesn't it doesn't seem like a long time in retrospect, but the time that it became, as I said it became really clear really quickly that we were on to something and that somebody was eventually going to need to do, full, to do it full time and I think that first it was basically a year and a half before we got enough funding for someone to go full time and that that initial fundraising was really really difficult. Um uh, it was, it's very difficult for like somebody to bet on you when nobody else has bet on you before. Um, and the, the managing like two jobs at the same time and trying to keep it going. I basically for that first year and a half had like no other life beyond like my job and running script ed. So I think that was the biggest hurdle at the very beginning is just getting the funding to, to dedicate the resources it really need to grow. Did you have like mentors during that time or were you just completely independent and figuring it out? Um, so that's a great question. Um, I, the first mentor I had in this process, uh, or the first person I would say that actually changed things so that they could become easier is, um, I went to a leadership boot camp uh, in like May or June of 2012 and I met a guy named Josh Silverman who uh, he was the founder of Evite, former CEO of Skype, and at that time was one of the president, he was the president of US Consumer Services at American Express. I grabbed him like right after he finished his talk and said, told him about what I was doing, and he's like, that sounds really interesting, I wanna learn more. So we, over the course of a couple of meetings, he ended up becoming our board chair and being the first person to give a donation that would like enable me to leave my job. He's been a mentor in the sense that he he's not only giving advice, but he actually champions us and like champions our work and like, uh, make sure that we're, we're doing well, but he gives me tons of leadership advice all the time about managing teams, about running a company. Uh, and that's been super helpful. So I think his involvement 
really made a huge difference in the beginning. That's amazing. Yeah. It's going to allow you guys to be so much more impactful instead of fumbling over every, you know, little obstacles that all businesses and organizations have to work through. Mm-hmm. It's your first time running your own organization and making the decisions and managing all these people. So Yeah. And I think the other thing that now that we're kind of talking on this, I think it's in the for-profit space, I've seen there's like a lot of accelerators and incubators that help people figure out how to start a for-profit but that doesn't really exist quite as much in the, the nonprofit space. There's not like an incubator that I can, well, maybe there, there might be, but I didn't know of any, like there was, it was just kind of like, I had the benefit of working at a law firm and having lawyers help me with the legal process, but I kind of had to figure it out as I went along. So, so. you're saying you want to start the next Lady Gay <laughs> Venture with us as an incubator for nonprofits. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's it. very specific <laughs> advice that nonprofits need if you're going to go that route. Um, and that was a lot of like figuring it out on my own. So if we're going to go back in time a little bit, um, mm-hmm. it's appropriate because you taught middle schoolers, but if you were looking back to yourself in your own life around that time, say middle school, Moria, mm-hmm. um, I guess what, and you said middle school was rough and as you know, I think a lot of people can agree, but I guess, what did you see yourself? What did you see for yourself then? Mm-hmm. Um, and not necessarily would you change anything, but I guess, was computer science or entrepreneurship on your radar at all? Uh, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, it's really funny because I go back to BC, I was a philosophy major, but I get asked to speak at the business school now, which is like so far from like what I thought I'd even be doing in college. So no, definitely wasn't on my radar. I think in middle school, there were a couple of things I even, if I even think back to elementary school, I've been an athlete my whole life. So I've always thought I want to have a job that allows me to always do athletics in addition to my job. So like something where I can manage my time. Um, and I had that thought as like a seven year old. (laughs) Um, and then I always, I thought, I think I probably thought I was going to be a lawyer when I grew up. I, I wasn't really exposed to a ton of different career fields growing up. Um, and I knew I liked arguing and thinking logically. Um, and I was really good at math and, and I thought that was part of like logical thinking. Um, so I thought that, um, I didn't want to go into math because I saw at that age, I saw math as like this thing where you don't talk to anyone and I wanted to be like a social person. But I also knew uh, that it, like logical thinking extended into law. So but I think that's probably what I thought I was going to do for most of my life. <laughs> I think that also speaks to the mission of Scripted with exposing kids at this young age to programming. Mm-hmm. And it's not that, oh, you know, 90% of them are going to become developers, but it's exposure to a new type of career path, um, a career path that's lucrative and in demand Mm -hmm. that they could make, you know, a reasonable living more than, you know, opening up a lot of opportunities for them. But I think that speaks to your mission too, to note that. Um, okay. And so again, back to like the middle school Moria Mm -hmm. and back in time. So, you know, we've heard a little bit about your mentors and the people who've come and helped Mm -hmm. you out, but were there people who were like, deeply inspiring to you then or even now and do you feel like you've had strong female role models in like entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. or just at large yeah I think my biggest role model I don't think I've had a ton of female role models I'll say that first I think that there needs to be a greater effort to put the stories of females out there so because I know like I have looked for female role models and wanted to learn about how other women have gotten to where they are. And I just don't think they're as readily available as I would like them to be. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I would say my mom is probably my female role model. Um, 
she was, a, I grew up uh, in a single parent household. Uh, she was a teacher or is a teacher still. Um, and she had three kids and managed to make sure that we grew up healthy and like happy and um, we're all relatively like successful, whatever that means. Um, and I think uh, I didn't really appreciate how difficult that was until I, until I started teaching and realized how difficult teaching was. And then to think about how she did it, she taught middle school um, and how she taught middle school and was raising three kids on her own. And she was an athlete too. Like she was managing all of this. And so I looked at her example as a way for me to kind of lead my life is like, okay, somebody, if my mom could do this, I'm totally capable of doing these things too. So it sounds like there's a history of athleticism in your family, but (laughs) between running a nonprofit, um, you're also an amazing triathlete. And so how do you find the time? I mean, I imagine it feels pretty necessary for you, but how do you make the time to compete in so many events and, um, triathlons in addition to races and everything else? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've been an athlete since I was really young, so it's always just been part of my life. I think that's part of why it's easier for me to fit it in um, and almost necessary. But I think in times when I haven't been competing, there's been like a you know a few times in my life where I've kind of taken have had athletics take a back seat, and I always end up doing like worse in my career or I'd get lower grades. And so for me, it's just like a really good time management tool like I know in the morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to work out at 6 a.m. and like it gets me on the right path for the rest of my day and I don't procrastinate because I know I have to get all this stuff done um, if I want to fit this in and I think it's just taught me so much about time management Um, it also just makes me like a more energetic and positive person I think I think it just the endorphins are are great (laughs) they're real that sounds Uh, yeah and um yeah, and it's also just good to have an outlet from work, like something that's totally different from what I do at work and kind of just let off some steam. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and so finally, what do the words Lady Cave mean to you? For me, what inspired me about your podcast when I read it was you. It was like ladies creating spaces uh, for themselves. And I think um, one thing I, I get chastised for a lot is that I I brag a lot about myself and I like to talk myself up because uh, uh, as you probably both know women don't do that enough and I think uh, you know having women come on and and talk about being successful and talk about what they've accomplished is incredibly important and I hope that by sharing my story that other women uh, will feel inspired to speak up and celebrate their own work and Uh, feel like they can go out and just have an idea and pursue it like starting a podcast for example like there's not really a lot preventing people women in particular from doing things it's a lot of times just a lack of confidence or a lack of belief that they could possibly do it and sometimes it's just putting one foot in front of the other and taking things very slowly one step at a time and it builds on itself like script ed wasn't built in a day like it took Mm. it's taken three and a half years and if uh, you know somebody hears this and thinks like, oh, I can't do something, I hope they hopefully have their mind changed because I was just like a teacher, <laughs> like who's interested in working with kids, and now I run a big, like it's becoming a big nonprofit, and like I didn't, you know, I didn't have any special anything. It was just doing it. So no, that's when people ask like, why did we start this podcast? Like 
I answered the other day, if one young woman hears something and then decides to make something, whatever mm-hmm. it is, like is empowered by that, then mm-hmm. we've succeeded. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. Like yeah. there's nothing more than that really. So yeah. Well great. thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, thank this you. Was so fun. This was so fun. fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about supporting ScriptEd or even getting involved at scripted.org. Or you can also find information on our show notes at theladycavepodcast.com. And we hope you feel inspired to start your own nonprofit or whatever it is that you've been thinking about creating. And we'll see you next week. Bye!